This is Steve Becker. I was a district court judge in Reno County, Kansas, and following my time on the bench, I served in the Kansas legislature. I'm Beth White. I spent almost a decade with the Department of Corrections, specifically with parole services, and I have a passion for podcasts, true crime, and wrongfully convicted. And this is Cleared. Good evening, Dad. Hey, how are you doing, Beth? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Had a, we had a little break from the heat, but we it's did. coming back. It's August in Kansas, so yes, we don't have a lot of room. Well, we can complain, but it's the same thing every year in August. Yes. Um, so shall I start with my update? Let's go right in. The National Registry of Exonerations has reached the 3,200 level. 3,200 exonerations since 1989. Uh, since our last episode, 17 uh, new exonerations have been posted on that register. Seven of them are from Chicago, Cook County, Illinois. Um, and listeners might remember that. I was going to say, that sounds a little familiar. It does. It keeps coming up every episode in my, <laughs> in my news brief. Maybe we should take a look at that. Man, official misconduct from the detectives of the Cook County Sheriff's Office. It's crazy how many uh, cases, how many exonerations there have been as a result of... Uh, uh, law enforcement misconduct. Um, of those new cases, six of them have been murder exonerations. So uh, the number keeps climbing. I want to say that that's a really good thing because we're getting innocent people out of prison, but it's a really bad thing that there's that, there's that many, Yeah, that that gives us an indication of how many more inmates are serving lengthy sentences for crimes they did not commit. Well, and it'd be interesting to know, and I'm sure we can do some research and get back with people too, how many years were lost out of Cook County alone and just out of a handful, or because of a handful of people, the years lost, just out of a handful of people doing the wrong thing. That, that's sad. Yeah, and be, just before the recording started, you and I visited briefly about uh, 
compensation to a particular uh, regional exoneree. It's the taxpayers who are paying for all these um, all these exonerations because the exonerees are obtaining uh, significant uh, settlement levels. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. And uh, those settlements are coming from, uh, you know, the source of the problem, such as Cook County. Uh, so, yeah, those are the taxpayers that are... Uh, are footing the bill for these exonerations. Well, and hopefully they're doing some sort of... Not the exonerations. They're footing the bill for the wrongful convictions. Yes, and hopefully they're doing some sort of... You would think there's a lot of news coverage right now, but some sort of mass information um, spreading about the cause of this and hopefully doing a lot to prevent it in the future, I would hope. There is a, a push. There have been organized efforts to require um i don't know if it's i I know it's something that happens in the states i don't know if it's a issue at the federal level but they want the public the push is that there should be a register kept of bad cops yeah because i've read several cases where the bad cop gets fired from his job and, goes and immediately else. finds another job in law enforcement. Yeah. And uh, there's those who want to have a record kept of these disgraced Absolutely. law enforcement officers. Absolutely. So that they get, uh, you know, they get marked. They get a star, not a star by the name, they get a black check. Yeah. By their name, and uh, maybe other law enforcements won't. Law enforcement agencies won't pick them up so quick. Yep. All right. Who are we going to talk about, Beth? Well, this week's going to be a little bit different. Um, we're going to cover a, a case, Laquanda Faye Jacobs. Now, this is different than something we've ever done before because Laquanda Faye Jacobs, she goes by Faye. Um, she is not technically exonerated. Well, then why are we talking about her? Well, we'll get to that. Um, you and I are going to go over her entire case. Uh, and if the people listening to this feel so compelled, we're going to have a call to action for those listening at the end of ways that you can get involved and help Faye in her quest for being uh, having her conviction righted at the end. And we'll explain how that process stopped because she is currently not incarcerated, but we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. So Laquanda Faye Jacobs, like I said, she goes by Faye. She was the youngest of 12 kids. She lived in Little Rock, Arkansas. She was the baby, six brothers and six sisters. Um, her family was very religious very loving, very caring. None of them had been in any kind of legal trouble, no school trouble. They minded their P's and Q's. They just, they did what they were supposed to do. On the date in question, February, early February of 1992, it was a Sunday. Her and her family had gone to church. They had ran some errands throughout the day and they were driving back home on their way back to another church event. 
Um, Faye was just 16 years at the, old at the time, and she was still in her white church dress. When they drove by, and I'm a little bit unclear on this, sometimes some of the articles I read said it was her house. Um, the Midwest Innocence Project indicated it was maybe a house that her parents had rented to people, so maybe like some sort of rental income property. Nonetheless, that doesn't necessarily matter. They see um, a lot of cop cars, a commotion around this residence, so they decide to stop and see what's going on. Faye gets out and walks over. Uh, The police officers immediately stop her, ask her name. Once she gives them the name, Faye, 16-year-old Faye, in her white dress, having just came from church, is thrown up against a cop car, placed in it and immediately taken to the Little Rock, Arkansas Police Department. She doesn't know it at the time, but she is being questioned for the murder of Kevin Gaddy, another 16-year-old that was murdered in that location just an hour before. Kevin actually went to the same, I believe, elementary school as Faye, and they were friends. So she's at the police station. She doesn't even know at this point who had been murdered, and they um, perform a gunshot residue test on her. This residue test comes back negative. So keep in mind, this incident happened an hour before. They perform the test. There's no gunshot residue on her. She is dressed completely head to toe in white. She has been with her family the entire day at church singing in the choir, so they release her. She goes back to her home kind of confused. Like I said earlier, her family is not familiar with the legal system. None of her six brothers or five sisters have ever been in trouble before, so this is a whole new process for her. When they come home, they discover that it is this Kevin Gaddy that has been murdered in front of the residence, and that's kind of where it ends for the minute. A little over a week later, police show back up at her house um, and arrest her. Despite there being no gunshot residue, no weapon, there was two, according to police, there was two people that identified her as the shooter and she is taken into custody. We later find out that there were multiple people present during the shooting. According to the district attorney, it is believed or they believe the motive for the shooting was that the victim was wearing a Chicago Bulls jacket. And it is believed or they allege that Faye wanted the jacket. And so she shot him and took the jacket from him. Again, keep in mind, Faye is at church with her family in a white dress. So poor Faye not familiar with the system. Her family has no clue what to do. She's sitting in prison, excuse me, she's sitting in jail. She's 16 years old. She's all by herself. She is the baby of the family, not knowing. Her attorney comes to see her, and let me just get this out of the way. She does not have very good luck initially with her attorneys. Her first attorney comes to her and says, hey, you're you're currently in the jail cell with this other person. How about you come and testify saying that they admitted that they committed this crime? And then in turn, I'll have somebody testify on your behalf too. Faye, being the religious person she is, is absolutely horrified and immediately says no and approaches the court, fires the attorney. That's it. So not a very good first start into this whole legal process with her attorney, especially for her God-fearing self and her family. That's not what they thought this was about. 
Her second attorney, first visit to her is the day before her trial. And let me remind you, or I guess I haven't mentioned it, she's, char- she's charged with capital murder at 16 years old. This isn't some misdemeanor peddly crime. This is a huge deal. And this attorney visits her for the first time a day before her trial. She, according to Faye, he said that he told her that he had her family give her some clothes so she would be presentable. Again, she has no idea what presentable means. She doesn't know what the trial's about. She has no idea what's going on with this process. Come to find out later, her second attorney, several years prior, had represented a woman in 1981 who was charged with murdering her husband. During this process of representing the woman, they became romantically involved, the attorney and the woman he was representing. The woman started to fall for the attorney, and somehow this murder-for-hire plot got involved, and the woman had two men pose as floral, floral delivery men to shoot the attorney's wife, to murder the attorney's wife. This is her second attorney. So after, her, after she's accused of murdering her husband. Yes. Yes. This yes, I yes, I know it, it. It it would be funny if it just weren't so freaking sad. So, the attorney is initially charged with the wife's murder until all this is uncovered. He's eventually this whole plot is found out, so the attorney's released. But this happens just a few short years prior to him representing Faye. So at one time, this attorney was a very prominent criminal defense attorney in the Little Rock area. This whole scandal has definitely hurt his reputation and his mental health, I'm assuming, because it is very heavily rumored that he is abusing um, substance abuse. He's abusing alcohol at the time and is is an alcoholic. And as part of that, he is not providing effective counsel to Faye. So much so, go ahead. So he is a disgraced attorney in the Little Rock, Arkansas legal community. Correct. And that's her second attorney. Notoriously disgraced. Well, and I didn't mention this. Her first attorney, the one that wanted her to lie about somebody committing that one, He was also known to have twice, not once, but twice, have little baggies of some illegal substances fall out at a bank that he was in possession of. So he was, I mean, it's just, I mean, it. you can. Okay. As you said earlier, she didn't have good luck with counsel. No. I mean, you, you couldn't even write this. It's just, it's awful. So she did not have a good go at it. Um, he was so ineffective that he didn't even ask for the district attorney's file on the case. He sh- the first time he met her was the day before the trial. So you can imagine the kind of um, case he brought forth during her trial. So despite there being no gunshot residue, he didn't really have any evidence. They had two witnesses saying that she was the person that shot 
um, the victim. Let let me quick interject about what you said right before that, okay. that, that he did not request, the defense attorney did not request files from the prosecutors, which is called discovery. Yes. Everyone knows in a legal case, you do not proceed before you have discovery. The reason everyone knows that is because we've all seen my cousin Benny. <laughs> and we learned in that movie that the defense attorney is entitled to the prosecutor's evidence. So, yeah, he he is well beneath my cousin Vinny yes. in his tactics. Well, and it, it makes you wonder how, I mean, obviously, if he didn't meet with her until the day before the trial, he's probably not doing a whole lot of his own research or hiring witnesses or going out and interviewing anybody on his own, which will make clear here in a second when I tell you everything he missed. So there were two witnesses. Um, the first witness was later to have been found out was somebody who had a personal vendetta against Faye, later came forward and said, fingered Faye as the person who shot the victim. The second was the victim's best friend who was present right by the victim during the shooting. Now that person was asked just moments after, hour after the crime happened, um, shown a picture of Faye and said, is this the person who shot? Is this the person who shot Kevin? And he said, no, it's not. So all of a sudden, nine days later, he's able to identify Faye. So that's a little sketchy, as we all know, with eyewitness testimony. If he can't do it, a, a, if he can't do it an hour, how all of a sudden, nine days later, is he able to identify Faye? That's, that's a little sketchy as, I mean, that's the least of sketchy, but that's questionable. And they didn't share that with defense counsel. Well, I don't. I don't think defense counsel asked. Well, so. that's just what I was going to say. Yeah, he doesn't have to ask. Yes, the duty of the prosecutor is to provide that to um, defense to counsel. the defense attorney. Yes. So. so, as far as I'm understanding, that was the end result of the evidence. The actual crime that took place was, I believe, maybe about 6 o'clock that evening. Um, Kevin and his friend, and there was a group of maybe eight or nine other people were outside of this house. A car pulled up. A woman and a man exited the car, asked for the Chicago Bulls jacket from Kevin. He indicated he needed to get something out of the pocket first, and the woman shot Kevin. Now... Later, we'll find out that had Faye's attorney asked for the files on the case, that there were not one, not two, not three, <laughs> not four, but five other eyewitnesses that said it was not Faye that was the shooter. It was a woman in her 30s who had scars beneath her eyes was dressed in a black hat and a black shirt and black pants. That gets a little sketchy because some say it was a blue shirt, blue pants, but you get the just dark clothing. Um, keep in mind, Faye is 16 years old, dressed head to toe in white, coming from church, not in black, and she's certainly not 30, and she definitely does not have scars beneath her eyes. So had the attorney asked for anything, he would have been made aware that there were five other witnesses saying, 
not only was it not Faye, but the actual person was twice her age and had very identifiable marks on her face. So there's that. So based on the very little evidence, which they never found the weapon, the gun, um, there was no gunshot residue on Faye. I, all I can really see is just these two, um, air quote, eyewitness fingering Faye in the incident. Faye was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to life without parole. Now, I know I've probably said it six or seven times. Faye and her family were not familiar with anything with the legal system. Faye went back to the jail and she was under the impression she was going to go home and that she would be on some sort of supervision for the rest of her life. That's what she thought. Um, She did an interview where she said the jailer had to explain to her, no, you're going to prison for the rest of your life. And apparently in Arkansas, being sentenced to life without the possibility of parole means you will never, ever, ever, ever get out of prison until you are deceased, unless the governor pardons you. There is no other escape there's no good time there's no there that's it it's either the governor partners the governor pardons you or you are deceased that is your only two exits from prison so imagine poor Faye, mental health whatever you want to however you want to say it when she realizes she is 16 years old and will spend the rest of her natural life in prison now Faye attributes um this really stiff sentencing on her part, apparently in the little rock area at this time, there was significant gang violence and a lot of it was juvenile related. It was also an election year. Apparently Bill Clinton had just been elected governor. So there was this big push to end or put a stop or quell gang violence, especially juveniles. So she feels like her case in particular was kind of set out to make an example or put that out there for other gang members in hopes to maybe stop it. Once she got to prison, only then did she realize that before she was even there, she would have been labeled a kid killer and the implications that that was put on her, not only by other inmates, but by staff too. And the difficulties that that was that she had to endure because of that. Um, It was not a fun time for her. She is an amazingly positive, spiritual, wonderful person. So I encourage everyone to go. I mean, you can Google interviews with her. She is able to find the positive in any situation. She talks about how her time in prison was her time to sew And so she was there and the situation she was put in, she believed she was put there for a reason. She talks about how eventually she earned the trust of the wardens and the guards where she was put in specific details, like working in the mental health facility where she was granted access to dealing with other people suffering from mental health illnesses and how meaningful that was for her because she was able to give some sort of guidance or provide some sort of reprieve to other inmates there and how special and purposeful that was for her the entire time while she was incarcerated she never gave up hope that 
she was going to be released. Her parents, particularly her dad, um, he would walk the streets asking people if they knew anything about the crime, asking people if they had any evidence. He would go to lawyers all over the Little Rock area asking if they would take on her on her case. Her family being so large, they weren't one of a whole bunch of means. So, of course, there was always an issue of money, but he, he never stopped trying. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2001, and at that time, her mom was really her champion. And they, her whole family just rallied against, uh, rallied for her and really, really was her rock during that time. She applied for, she says, just every single innocence project she could. She said she kept getting letters back that she was waitlisted and waitlisted and waitlisted. And then finally in 2014, she applied for the Midwest Innocence Project. We love the Midwest Innocence Project. We do. So she was received notification that they were going to accept her case. And that again, that was in 2014. She said she got the application and she she said she thinks it was maybe meant to deter people because the application itself, she said, took her a week. It was that long and that involved. And she said very clear, very bold at the top of the application. It says, like, if you were there, if you were witness, if you were part of it, if you were guilty anyway, just don't waste our time because we can't help you. So she filled out the application and we had already kind of talked about nobody had really investigated this at all for her. So the Midwest Innocence Project really went to task for her and interviewed and got got the case files. Like you said, did the bare minimum with that and discovered all the one, two, three, four, five other witnesses that said, no, it was not her. It was a woman in her 30s, a young woman in her 30s with scars under her eyes that was the shooter. They found all of this evidence and they filed a petition in May, um, May 11th of 2018, petitioning the court to overturn her conviction. Now about, actually it was a couple years prior in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to sentence juveniles to a life sentence, life without parole. Now, for Faye, she was the only female in the state of Arkansas that this applied to. She was the only single, she was the only single person. So she said she remembers at that time, all of a sudden, all these innocence projects started reaching out to her and all these attorneys started reaching out to her wanting to help because she was the only one. Um, But thankfully, Midwest Innocence Project was already with her, so they helped her with it. So Let me interject at this point. Talk Uh, to me about... Talk to me about that. That opinion, that 2012 opinion. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on a number of Supreme Court um, opinions. Uh, I'm comfortable in doing that, but I don't know if my listeners are. Uh, I had a career where we, during arguments, Supreme Court opinions would be drawn as weapons and. We'd go back and forth and back and forth with different Supreme Court opinions. But for purposes of Faye, uh, in the last couple of decades, um, there's been a recent trend with the Supreme Court of the United States that juveniles, because of their lack of maturity, should be treated differently than adults. 
and they, and they did so based upon all the science that had been done about the development of the brain. The brain. I think they say isn't the brain not fully developed to like mid early twenties. It like certainly isn't developed in the sixteen as teenagers. Yes. yes, and and the court recognized it, adopted it. In 2005, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the Eighth Amendment, that's the one that deals with cruel and unusual punishment, the Eighth Amendment prohibits juveniles from being sentenced to death for a crime that is committed uh, before the age of 18. Um, So that's where it begins in 2005. And, and the reason I'm doing this is to show how, how this develops. Five years later, 2010, um, the Supreme Court ruled that they abolished life without parole for juveniles in non-homicide cases. Um, so that was another step. And then in 2000, that was in 2010. Yeah. In 2012, two years later, yep. is the big case that uh, Beth mentioned, and that applies to Faye. In, two, in June of 2012, uh, I think this is the Miller versus Alabama case, a Supreme Court of the United States ruled that mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles convicted of homicide was unconstitutional in that it violated the Eighth Amendment in cruel and unusual punishment. Um, And then there have been um, other cases that developed a very uh, a very tight exception to that rule. There were um, cases that said uh, juveniles could receive life sentences with no possibility of parole if if the juvenile convicted of murder was so incorrigible or that there was no hope of rehabilitation. In those rarest of cases, yes, a juvenile could be um, sentenced to life without prison. The reason I'm bringing this all this up is because we have a new conservative majority on the Supreme Court due to the three appointees by President Trump. And in April of 2021, um, the majority in a six to three opinion in Jones versus Mississippi, the conservative majority ruled that a judge need not make this finding of permanent incorrigibility, in other words, no hope of rehabilitation, that a judge need not make that finding before sending a juvenile offender to life without parole. So they just essentially undid it? It removes that exception and yeah, I mean, we're going to have to wait for more developments, but sure, the argument's going to 
be that just what you said that they've undid they've undone this nearly 20 years of over 20 years of um, treating juveniles differently from adults that's that's a very disconcerting case um, this most recent one so I wanted to uh, discuss that thank Faye got to benefit yeah yeah from um, the Supreme Court's previous rulings and uh, yeah I don't like what happened in 20 2021 well and i think the rationale behind the original 2012 decision being a minor like we had just talked about and i think i remember um from one of my pre-nursing courses like the human brain isn't fully developed until early 20s maybe um because i remember that stuck out with me with anyways not important um, but it gets into this whole idea about the court recognizing science that's not real popular in some areas today well i was gonna say it it kind of carries over into what maybe our shared belief about capital punishment somebody whose mind isn't fully developed or capable of making lasting decisions then in turn being punished for something the rest of their life about something they maybe weren't necessarily capable of comprehending at a younger age having lasting consequences but that may be a discussion for a different day and i would like to take it's this serious. opportunity to encourage everybody to vote so it's serious stuff Beth. very serious how we how the criminal justice system treats our children serious stuff well, and I think a unique perspective that I think you and I have, you from your decades on the bench, because I know you would see generational um, families come before I did. you. I did. And even in the short period of time that I worked with corrections, I would see generations come before me. And it's not it's not a one and you're done thing it bleeds over into generations after and after and after. And that's something that we really need to find a way to stop because just incarcerating somebody without offering them any sort of reentry services or hope for anything different. If we incarcerate an individual and then re-release them into the same environment that they were committed the crime in, we're setting them up for the same, the same end result, which is in turn going to put their, anyways it's going to put their whole family in the same situation it's going to continue this cycle over and over and over again and we have to find a way out of that for hope for the kids in the future so tough stuff very tough stuff i was not familiar with that 2021 that that makes me sad so so thankfully though faye was able to take uh, take advantage of the the 2012 Supreme Court ruling it unconstitutional to sentence juveniles to life. Uh, the original prosecutor was going to resentence her to 40 years for her crime, but then offered her time served. The prosecutor was aware of the petition that the Midwest Innocence had filed for her wrongful conviction. Um, and if she took the, uh, the DA's offer of time served, 
and you need to help me with this. If she took the offer of the DA's offer of time served, she'd be immediately released, but she would not be able to pursue any future legal uh, legal arguments through the courts dealing with her wrongful conviction. What an interesting dynamic that this is, and it occurs in most of our no, in many of our exoneration stories, um, when they get, when they make efforts, or even when there's an exoneration, the court sends the case back to the trial court and sets us, the court sets aside the conviction and sends the case back to the trial court. It's not unusual at all for the prosecutor who now gets this case that might be 25 years old. He's not anxious to try it again, but he doesn't want to dismiss it. What he's going to do is approach the defendant through counsel, of course, and offer a deal. If you plead, I will recommend a sentence of time served, and you walk out of the courtroom. I mean, how attractive yeah. is that? Especially in phase in phase case, she spent twenty six years incarcerated. She was sixteen when she went in, so she's coming out a forty six year old woman. Or you can go to trial again, and we'll try to convict you again. So you decide. Walk within a a week or two, or go or for the go 40. to trial, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Gosh, what a what a decision to make. And I will say, in an interview I watched with Faye, um, her mom was not in good health at the time, and I had already, I had already mentioned her dad had passed in 2001. Um, so I have to imagine maybe that played some role in it. She had already of lost... Of course it would. Of she course already lost it would. a brother, I believe, a sister, and a nephew, nephew while she was incarcerated. Um, her one dream as a child or one of her major dreams as a child was to be a mother. She's already in her forties, obviously biologically, that's going to be difficult for her in her forties. So you can't, I, I can't even begin to imagine all the thoughts that are going on in her head as she's being approached with this, this choice. So, and what choice did she, take? she, she took the deal. I assume it was the deal. There's not a whole lot of information about it, but she, um, was resentenced and immediately released. Yes. Um, as part of that release, like we mentioned, she is no longer able to pursue any wrongful conviction relief through the courts. That's because in order to get the deal, she pled guilty. You're not going to get relief from the courts if you pled guilty. Yeah. I mean, then you waive everything. You have no more appellate rights. You waive every, Courts aren't going to look at you again because you pled guilty. Yeah. So that's all gone. Yeah. That. Yeah. That's not fair. Um. So, and along with that, not only is she not able to pursue her innocence, she's not also she's also not able or not eligible for any sort of reentry relief. She's not on any sort of post-release supervision or parole. So, she went in when she was 16 in 1992 
Um, if you were alive in 1992, if you were alive and old enough to remember what 1992 looks like, I want you to take a minute and think about that. Um, I'm pretty sure that was pre-internet. That was definitely pre-cell phones. If it wasn't, it was bag phones. I mean, imagine getting out as an adult, not knowing what anything looks like, and then expected to go into society with a conviction, with a felony conviction for murder, and try and do something with your life with no resources from the state at all. Thankfully, the Midwest Innocence Project, who we love, was able to hook her up with um, some, I think there was a reentry program that she spent 65 days in in Texas that helped her just reacquaint, reacquaint with society, explain to her all of this stuff, because it would be very much like just moving to a different planet and then expecting to thrive without knowing how anything works. Um, after that, she went to another program. Let me get the name of it here, which was Journey to a New Life. That program helped her obtain a car, helped her apply for um, housing, helped her find a house, and she was also able to find a job despite her felony conviction. She is currently working someplace that has never hired a felon, which I attribute, and if you will too, if you listen to any of her um, interviews or podcasts or anything, to her amazing spirit and her wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, warm sense of positivity. She moved from Arkansas, obviously, to Kansas City. She is a big Chiefs fan for all my fellow Kansans. Uh, She has two fur babies that she loves. She lives with her mother, I believe, and her stepfather, who she is able to take care of. I mentioned they weren't in good health prior to her release. She is now taking care of them, and they are doing much better, the last that I was able to see. She also has a nephew that she helps um, take care of, too, that goes between her aunt, I believe her sister and him, so she's helping raise, too. We had mentioned that um, one of her life goals or what she longed to be was a mother. Unfortunately, she I believe she's now maybe 46, so biologically that's tricky for her. Uh, unfortunately due to her felony conviction, also adoption is going to be extremely tricky for her with that on her record, the Midwest. And I guess another thing I should say, we should say, um, the court system is no longer an option for her to receive relief for her innocence. The only way she is going to receive relief is a pardon through the governor the Midwest Innocence Project helped her file a petition with the governor in 2020, I believe. Um, the governor just this year in January uh, turned down that request without commenting it on it at all. She now has to wait, I believe, six years before she could submit another appeal for pardon. Um, this kind of comes to where our call of action is for you. There is an e, uh, a change.org petition for her. There is currently, I looked right before we recorded, there is 66,425, including myself. People have signed that petition requesting that the governor pardon her conviction. Um, and just, just a, a real brief synopsis. I know this is um, about 40 minutes long about her case, but... She was 16 years old, on track to graduate early, singing in the church choir dressed head to toe in white with her family when the crime occurred. 
the only evidence that is against her is two people. One had a vendetta. One immediately said that it was not her. A week later came back and said that it was. Five other people who were present at the time of the crime said it was not her and that it was a woman in her 30s with scars underneath her eyes. The car that the... Um, the perpetrator was in, was never identified. The uh, gun was never identified. Really, the only thing that I have been able to identify from all of my research was just these two witnesses saying that it was her. And again, um, that their testimony is kind of really questionable too. So if you feel so compelled, I would encourage you to go to the change.org petition and sign for Faye. Uh, she's currently in Kansas City. She has founded her own organization called Innocence 2, um, where she helps people that were recently leased with wrongful conviction get back into society. And she does so with her own personal funds. It is an LLC. I wasn't able to find any kind of website for it. I know in the last interview I saw her do, she said she was still working on getting that website up. Um, but there is a Facebook group for her, Innocence 2, and it's Innocence T-O-O. You can also reach her through the Midwest Innocence Project. Um, She's also on LinkedIn. She's a motivational speaker, and she is just an amazing human being. It never fails to just amaze me the grace and the compassion these exonerees have after losing decades of their life, and they're not full of bitterness and hate, but they somehow find just, just... I don't know, positivity in their situation. And they're able to, they're able to make changes in their environment for the positive. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. And it's so expire inspiring to me. So. Yeah. That Faye's story moved you, didn't it? Yes. And honestly, I told dad, I said, I wanted to do Faye. And he, she, he said, well, she's not exonerated. I said, I don't care. We're doing Faye. <laughs> We're doing Faye. So she is, a remarkable woman. So I encourage everybody to go sign that petition. Um, I don't know if it's like a set thing. She has to wait six years. Dad and I were talking about that. That would be awesome if she didn't have to, but anything we can do to help her would just be amazing. So that's all I have about the wonderful Faye Jacobs. You did the wonderful Faye Jacobs story very well. Thank you. Yes. And again, 26 years lost. Okay. I think we'll close for the day. That sounds good to me. If you want to reach us, you can find us on cleared pod on Instagram or cleared podcast on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. And once again, if you're so compelled, please reach out and sign that petition on change.org. We will have the link posted on, um, the links to this podcast. It's change.org for Laquanda Faye Jacobs. And we want to give a special shout out to Christopher Acker, our producer of this episode and all of our episodes. And we want to thank the Foxtrot Public Resource Media Studio in Hutchinson, uh, which allows us to use their facility. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you, listeners. Assault City Sound Production.